You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. In the summer of 1987, something strange happens in the spot where the Whiskey Creek murders will occur more than 30 years later. Here's a written account told by someone who was there that night. A night described as dark under clear skies. It was about 11 p.m. on a Saturday night in the summer. Myself and two friends arrived near the Whiskey Creek gravel pit because we heard a rumor that there was a party going on. All three of us were 18 years of age at the time. I was a driver and I pulled my car off the highway. The rumor was false. There was no party and the area was completely deserted. As I was about to back up and turn the car around, my friend pointed out what appeared to be a set of eyes looking at us from out of the darkness. I distinctly recall thinking the eyes likely belonged to a bear. But out of curiosity, I turned the car in that direction and drove a little closer. As we approached, I turned on the high beams to get a closer look. There, caught in my headlights, standing at the base of the western edge of the pit, was a creature that was clearly not a bear. We were about 50 feet away and had a clear, unobstructed view. The creature was very tall, around seven feet, and muscular with long arms. It stood very still and had a form similar to a human, only much larger. It was covered completely in long, dark hair, with the exception of its face. The creature's eyes had a distinct orange glow about them, and it seemed to be looking directly at us, almost as though it was stunned, or maybe thought we couldn't see it. For a few moments, there was a period of complete silence. All three of us tried to take in what we were looking at. Then, I remember being overcome by an overwhelming sense of fear as every hair on the back of my neck stood straight up. My friend in the passenger seat started yelling at me to get the hell out of there. And we did. Stories and songs about Bigfoot, Yeti, or Sasquatch have long been told by Indigenous people on the West Coast. In fact, Sasquatch is the anglicized version of Saskets, which means hairy man in Halkamalam. Some traditions hold that the creature can change from its physical form to a rock, a tree, or even another animal. That it's a shapeshifter and can walk in two realms, the spiritual and the physical. The mythology that something dark, mysterious, dangerous even, lurks in the Whiskey Creek area doesn't surprise me. The area is jaw-droppingly beautiful, but at night, as the mist drifts down into the thick forest, there is an otherworldly quality that can be a little unnerving. On November 1st, 2020, a dirt biker happens upon a scene that would surely have made his blood run cold. He finds a man lying on the dirt road and he calls 911. That man is Tyler. In this episode, you'll hear from people who love and miss him, who can't believe this kind, gentle man was brutally murdered and no one seems to give a damn. 
I'm Laura Palmer. This is Whiskey Creek, Island Crime, Season 5. My wristwatch is broken. My shoes are untied. Time is a ticking, and so is the tide. But I am not worried. Things are what they are. Come rain or come shine or a shooting star. Tyler has never been publicly identified, but I now know who he is. Once again, out of concern for the man's family, I won't be making his last name public. In the months leading up to his murder, Tyler's social media accounts take on something of a fatalistic tone. Live for today, because yesterday is over. You never know what is going to happen tomorrow. It is Tyler's mom who first contacts me about her son's death. The email that comes through my Island Crime website reads, Hi. I would like to discuss with you an unsolved case involving my son. I'd like to know if you'd be interested in delving into it and possibly getting some answers. I'm not very tech savvy, so I appreciate all the help that I can get. I want to learn what she knows about the murders. Of course I do. But first, I need to get a sense of who she is and how her son came to be a victim out at Whiskey Creek. I've lived on Vancouver Island, born and raised here on the island. She marries, and she and her husband work hard to make a life for themselves and the family they hope to raise together. When Tyler is born, I'm newly married. Well, his father and I had been married for two years. We had built a new home that we struggled to do with the money that we had. So it was a home bought and paid for before Tyler was born. And then we had Tyler. Tyler, too, is a born Islander. Son, who is the victim in this case, was born and raised here. Tyler was born August 19, 1982. Tyler's parents are together for almost 30 years. They build a successful business and raise two kids. You know, there was some bumpy roads, and a lot of that had to do with the the children and the business, so. Well, whatever I say, it's going to come back to haunt me because my wife thinks on it. If I say anything, no matter whatever I said, it was always wrong. That's Tyler's father. He's open to speaking with me about his son, but he worries about awakening old grievances with his now ex-wife. And unfortunately, our conversation takes place on a phone, so you'll need to listen closely. The major problem is my wife and I couldn't agree on how to raise our two children. Work and money were his life, and family life really got in the way. Her way was the right way, and my way was the wrong way, I guess you could say. Tyler's mom believes their son felt let down by his father. There was no support. There was no, a a huge letdown. It was like, why? Like, you know, why does he do that? He could do no wrong. If he got in trouble at school, my wife would defend him beyond recognition. 
he was always on my back about, oh, you got to cut the apron strings. You got to, you know. She believes Tyler had a learning disability, but maintains her husband never really came to grips with it. And not accepting that his son really did have a learning disability that hampered him from being able to read and write and do math as well as a, I I don't want to say normal, but an average person. He struggled. My wife would go in there and and raise hell with the teachers. And our son would do no wrong. Not one, all those teachers could have been wrong. He struggled with learning. I'm not, yeah, he he did. And I do too, too. Still, both his parents agree that Tyler was a sweet kid. His mom describes him as meek, mild, easy to raise. He was a very soft-hearted, kind boy. Yeah, he was a lovely kid. They share fond memories of Tyler's years growing up when the family is still together. He loved going with his papa up to Comox Lake. He loved the camp. Like many Canadian kids, Tyler takes to the ice. He played hockey. He wasn't a good hockey player, but he played the game and he had a bit of fun with that. Looking back, Tyler's mom believes her son's gentle nature, combined with his learning disability, make him an easy target. He used to get teased a lot about his learning disabilities all through his school life. And not surprisingly, the bullying carries on in Tyler's time in hockey, too. He told me years later that the other guys who were the good hockey players used to throw his hockey gear in the shower and get it all wet and trip him up when he was coming out from the, the shower rooms to the ice. So, you know, he was, he was really bullied a lot that way, but he never fought back. He wasn't a fighter. Tyler doesn't have it easy through school, but he makes it. He wasn't academically inclined. So it was a struggle for Tyler, but you know what? He hung in there and he actually graduated. A shining accomplishment and a memorable moment for Tyler and his family. One of the happiest days remembering his graduation, he wanted a a white suit and he picked all that out and, you know, he was so proud to graduate from, from school. I've seen pictures of Tyler as a young man. I describe him as tall, lean, handsome, a sensitive-looking young guy. He appears to be intelligent and thoughtful. I'm told Tyler loves listening to Johnny Cash and CCR. Fish and chips are one of his favorite meals. He's also really into trucks and enjoys watching TV shows like The Dukes of Hazard, The Deadliest Catch, and The Simpsons. But throughout his adulthood, Tyler struggles to find work. His dad owns a business and offers him a job. But working together proves difficult for both of them. I'm a workaholic. I love to work. He didn't like to work. He was lazy. What do I want to have to do with someone that's lazy all the time? Tyler's mom recalls her boy trying to make a go of several occupations. He makes repeated attempts at qualifications to drive heavy vehicles. He gets a certification to use hazardous cleaning products and cleans commercial buildings for a number of years. He's a mover, 
a roofer, a carpet cleaner. In the years to come, Tyler's parents both remarry. I backed off. I didn't want to be a good father. I was a shitty father, you could say. Because he he was, in my eyes, he was spoiled. Hearing from Tyler's parents helps me to understand his background and to see him through their eyes. I also reach out to those who knew him as a friend. One of Tyler's best friends is dumbfounded when he begins hearing rumors that Tyler has been murdered. I can't remember who told me. And then I didn't believe it at first, of course. Because, I mean, Tyler being murdered? Yeah, right. When I saw it on Facebook, when the family had posted that they appreciate uh, everybody's well wishes, but they were just like, left alone and that's when I knew for a fact that uh, that unfortunate thing had happened immediately just knew that it it was he had to be in the wrong place at the wrong time and it had nothing to do with um, him doing anything wrong out of an abundance of caution I'm not identifying this young guy by name Yeah, I'm Tyler's friend. But again, I know who he is, and I've been trying to reach him for months. When we first finally speak over the phone, it's a pretty emotional, intense conversation. Tyler is one of his oldest and dearest friends. Now, he's had years to wrap his head around his friend's death. But because of all the secrecy around the Whiskey Creek story, he still has lots of questions. And he is clearly still shaken by the loss. He wants to talk about his friend and how much Tyler's life and his death have impacted him and many others. He and Tyler met when they were about 10 years old. Grade 7 PE class. We were in the same PE class, I remember that. He lived up the road. I used to go dirt biking up by his his neighborhood like all the time. He lived right by the pipeline. There was a group of us. We just all hung out. That's how I met him. Grade 7 PE class. <laughs> and then we were both in uh, learning assistance class. He smiles and laughs as he thinks back on childhood memories with Tyler. He was always up for whatever. I mean, we spent a lot of time mountain biking and uh, stuff like that. He's just a happy kid. Just like all of us, I guess. I mean, we grew up in the suburbs, so, you know, there's really nothing uh, nothing to not be happy about. We got the, the ocean, the river, and the, and the mountains. As the boys enter their teen years, Tyler, it seems, is living a great life on the island, full of fun and adventure. He had bought a boat. It was built for the lake. It was like one of those, like, 80s speedboats with the tiny little windshield. And uh, we got this idea to go to Hornby Island. And it was just the two of us. And barely made it over there. Almost sunk the thing. And then we met these girls on the beach. And we got distracted. And the tide went out. And <laughs> I guess the tides that at that time of the year were uh, every, every day they were getting lower and lower so they wouldn't come up. So the boat was completely beached. By the end of the weekend, we had to get like six guys to tow the boat down so we'd finally get into the water and make the trek back. 
quite the adventure. But I just remember it being funny that we let that happen just because uh, being a couple of <laughs> young horn dog kids, not even paying attention to the boat as soon as we saw bikinis. That was a good time. When someone meets a violent end, there's a tendency to focus on that and whatever the horrible circumstances were that led up to their deaths. But I love hearing these stories about the good times in Tyler's life. He's not just a nameless victim of a shootout. His friend is helping to bring Tyler into a clearer focus with these memories. I mean, we used to camp a lot. I remember he got a brand new dirt bike one time and uh, he, yeah, he's no, no license at all, no helmet. And he showed up at my place at two o'clock in the morning. Um, check out what I just got. <laughs> that was kind of like, you know, uh, pardon my language, but just no fucks given at all. <laughs> and and uh, not even thinking he's doing anything wrong. <laughs> he's, just like, he's just so excited to have the bike. He didn't even realize he's ripping around with no helmet. And it's two o'clock in the morning, uninsured. Um, I think we were probably about 17 or 18 at that time. But that was pretty funny. The two remain friends, but Tyler's pal moves east and he's unclear about how his friend's life goes downhill. You're always having a good time. And um, yeah, he's a great guy. I, I mean, it just blew me away what happened. I can't, uh, I went to Alberta and he stuck around. And um, I guess, uh, you know, Corgi's got a, there's another side of it, you know, other than, you know, the beautiful mountains and the rivers and the, the ocean, there's, you know, this, side that uh, Tyler got caught up in. I'm not even sure how how it happened, but it, I've seen it happen to other people too, and it happens really quick. Well, it just blows me away that this uh, unfortunate thing, this horrible, horrible thing happened. We all have friendships like this. The bonds so strong that you can be separated by time or geography or both for years, decades even. But when you're together, it's like you've never been apart. Even though I hadn't seen him in years, when I saw him last, we hadn't skipped a beat. It was just like I saw him yesterday. His loyalty to his friend is such that he's reluctant even now to say too much about his friend's drug addiction. But he also wants to honor his friend's memory with the truth. Oh, he was open about it. That guy went um, and hung out at his place. He asked me if I wanted a beer, and he gave me a near beer. So he wasn't drinking, but he was, um, yeah. He had substance abuse problems with other things. Like, I had a slander, a friend who's passed away. I mean, like, I, but I mean, you're looking for the truth, right? So, and I think that's what his mom's looking for, too. So when I saw him last, he, I guess, uh, yeah. I mean, what's the whole point of this? Unless you're going to be perfectly honest. He told me that uh, when I offered him a beer, he's like, no, but I'd do some heroin if you had some. We talk about the call Tyler made to his mom, claiming he was being held against his will at Whiskey Creek. Tyler's friend has had family members involved in the drug world over on the lower mainland. And he offers this perspective. A classic dealer move right there. Yeah, it's what they call people under their your thumb. It's no different than what like a pimp does, I guess. Yeah, you know, it makes him feel like he owes him or something. 
I've seen it firsthand. Ugly stuff. Today, he chooses to remember his friend's optimistic approach to life, a disposition he says Tyler held even when he was going through some really tough times the last time they were together. The last time I saw him, he was smiling and laughing and we were having a good time. I offered him a beer. He wasn't drinking. I know he was living in a van at the time, just down the road. I would say he was content. Yeah, he was, there was, there was no shame in, like, he was, he, was, he liked his van. He liked being able to go wherever he wanted, whenever he wanted, and his house would be right there. No complaints, that's for sure. And I've seen the upside of things. He's stoked. <laughs> He's like had all these wonderful things to say about it. It's a positive person. We were friends for since I was ten. He was a great friend. So, you know, even though we hadn't seen each other in a few years, every every time we saw each other, it was just it's like I seen him yesterday. We hadn't skipped a beat. The woman you're about to hear has been close to Tyler for much of her life. She is fearful that speaking publicly about Tyler could put her in danger. So I agreed to keep her name confidential and to alter her voice. Okay, sorry, yes, I've known Tyler most of my life. He, he was picked on. He never fought back. He never stood up for himself. He was... He was a very loving loving person like he, he wouldn't hurt a fly Tyler has a few serious long-term relationships but ultimately his relationship with drugs proves to be his most enduring one Tyler was a good gentle man that only ever wanted to help people but he had so much hurt and pain on his own heart he was a hurting soul trying to cover the pain and trying to mask the hurt and the pain on his heart that he couldn't understand. And, and the drugs gave him an escape from it. He wasn't a thief. He wasn't a robber. He wasn't a thug. He wasn't a drug dealer. He just, he couldn't see any light. He couldn't see any hope. He couldn't find any, he couldn't see anyone wanting to help him. By the time Tyler is in his late 30s, he finds himself homeless in the same town where he once played hockey, went to school, had friends, worked, and was a contributing part of the community. So yes, Tyler was in the homeless camps here in Courtney. So we, we were constantly having communication with him, right? He's living on the streets of Vancouver Island and he's on drugs but he's still in regular contact with family. Well, it looks like he comes to my sister's house to make contact. Does he have phones? He has different phones all the time, but he sells them for drug money. Like, I, I've still got the, the last texts on my phone that I've kept from a phone that he had. And the last text I got was, this isn't his phone anymore. Tyler's father recalls seeing his son one last time before Tyler is murdered. Maybe five months before he was killed, I guess. He was mixed up. In the period leading up to Tyler's death, his closest contact is with his aunt. Around this time, Tyler's mom moves up the island. His aunt gets diagnosed with cancer. 
She is gravely ill and worries that Tyler might bring COVID to her doorstep. Remember, this is all unfolding in 2020, the height of the pandemic. My sister and I are constantly talking. Have you heard from, you know, I would phone her. Well, has Tyler dropped in? No, I haven't seen him, so I'm getting worried. Because it was getting to be COVID time and my sister was ill, she was really afraid of who Tyler had been in contact with. She didn't want to get COVID. But he would come and he would sit on her back porch. And so he was still making, he was still contacting my sister. She still had, we still had communication with him. Even when he sort of lost his phone, right? He would come and check in. What his mother doesn't know, what those close to Tyler will later learn, is that during this period, Tyler is driving for Sean McGrath. The Sean guy, he started driving for the Sean guy. Tyler was over on back road. This is a story I was told was Tyler was on back road. He was over at so-and-so's house on back road and this guy showed up and basically was like does anyone have a license and tyler was like i do and basically the guy was like okay you're my driver now i guess as a driver tyler would drive him and get free drugs if he would drive this guy somewhere then he would get paid with his fix this makes sense to me In examining McGrath's criminal record, there are charges for driving while prohibited. It would have been useful for him to have someone like Tyler to drive. Living close to McGrath, acting as his driver, she believes Tyler is witness to things that make him fear for his life. It's the end of summer 2020 when she sees Tyler in person one last time. It was the end of August when Tyler was standing in the woodshed and I said, where are you living, Tyler? And he said, I'm out in the bush. I said, what do you mean you're out in the bush? He said, I'm living in some RVs out in the bush. I said, that doesn't sound good, Tyler. He says, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. So he was completely defending. And I said, Tyler, you're going to get yourself killed. And then she gets a call that something terrible has happened. I got told that I had to meet. And um, I walked in and I don't even think anyone told me. And they just looked at me. And that's how I found out. I asked what she believes happened that night at Whiskey Creek. Apparently they came and they boarded up the RVs. And Tyler was able to escape through one of the windows. And, but what he apparently he got out of one of the windows of the RV and hid under the other RV that was parked right beside the RV. And I don't know what happened from there because Tyler was found on the service road. Tyler was not found inside the RVs. So I don't know if he had gotten up from the other RV and tried to run through the service road. Now, of course, my brain says, why didn't you go through the bush? Why didn't you go through the bush? Maybe if you had gone through the bush, you would still be alive. Today, her memories of Tyler are mixed with guilt and fear. 
You hold a lot of guilt, though, because you think maybe if I would have visited in rehab, maybe if I would have gone to the counselor, maybe if I could have just gave him a safe place, you know, you, you beat yourself. Maybe I could have. Maybe I could have helped. Maybe I could have been there. There's a lot of guilt there for me. Those who love Tyler are determined to fight for justice. I would love to see the person responsible for it behind bars. I would love to see the cops stop turning a blind eye because they just think it's some junkie that was killed. Justice, right? But legal justice. The way it's supposed to be done. They are speaking out despite a fear for their own safety. I'm really scared. I really don't want to get myself hurt. These people are still alive. So that's scary, right? I'm talking about the people that have done this, the people that have killed him, the people that are in charge, the people that are high up there, the people that run the the, the dope on the island. They all work together. It was a pretty big hit to just be some peddling street thug that's selling a gram here and a gram there. Tyler's mother wants someone to be held accountable for her son's murder. Nobody showed up when there was shots fired. Nobody went to the fire when it was when it was alerted to them. So nobody's even trying to figure out who murdered my son. They don't care. If you've ever had a loved one wrestle with a serious addiction, you will appreciate that they are at the mercy of whatever it is they're addicted to. But Tyler's mom believes her son may have been quite literally being held hostage at Whiskey Creek. Those close to Tyler describe how throughout his life he was bullied, harassed, and victimized. Is it possible this gentle young man was being held hostage in the period leading up to his murder. It sounds far-fetched, but this story, alleging people were confined against their will out at Whiskey Creek, has legs. We heard it from outreach worker Kelly Morris, and I also stumble on a story of a young man who tells a very similar tale. I've heard his information through someone I know well and trust. This man says he escaped from an encampment in the woods. At the time, he was addicted to drugs and unhoused. Let's call him Charlie. Charlie describes fleeing in the dead of night, running barefoot through the forest. He agrees to speak with me. We exchange messages and calls. But to date, I've yet to record his story. It's not a lot, but it adds a little weight to the possibility that Tyler's account could be true. I look through Tyler's online life, searching for any clues. His mother tells me Tyler loved animals, that he had dogs growing up, and a few as an adult as well. He got a little, um, little pit bulls, a little beige pit bull that he got, and that was like his only, that's what he had left was his dog. He did, he loved dogs, he loved animals. The last content he shares is about his dog, who he describes as his best friend. The brief video shows a small golden pit bull terrier in a bright red harness. 
Nobody deserved it, but Tyler, Tyler definitely did not deserve it. He really did kill an innocent person. Tyler didn't make it out alive, but the other young man did. His story ahead. he was dead. When they left the scene, and from the grace of God, for some reason, he just happened to build some sort of a shelter thing, and he went, jumped into it. If you have information about the Whiskey Creek murders, please call the Vancouver Island Integrated Major Crime Unit's tip and information line at 250-380-6211. I'm Laura Palmer, and this is Whiskey Creek, Island Crime, Season 5.